0: Every day, the graduate student writers of astrobytes.org publish summaries of recent developments in astronomy. Then we sit down with three recent astrobytes of our choosing and bring them together, sometimes in ways you wouldn't expect. We call it Astro Soundbites. I'm Will Saunders. I'm a second-year Ph.D. student at Boston University, where I study planetary atmospheres.
1: I'm Alex Galliano. I'm a second-year Ph.D. student at the University of Illinois at Urbana-Champaign, where I study supernovae and other transient events.
2: And I'm Melena Rice. I'm a third-year Ph.D. student at Yale University, where I study planetary systems and small bodies.
0: You're listening to Episode 9 Beyond the grave, guys. I I gotta tell you the the past like few weeks I've been kind of feeling like a zombie myself. I I don't know maybe <laughs> maybe it's this theme maybe it's reading all these astrobytes about destruction or maybe it's just the fact that I'm like buried in coursework at the moment. But I am just mm. dragging today. Could, could, I, I gotta get more excited about this. Help me help me get amped up about this theme. Help <laughs> you get amped up. Well,
1: okay. I'll start off by saying that any healthy uh, grad student lifestyle incorporates at least a modicum of work-life balance. So I recommend (laughs) sleeping enough and exercising and uh, incorporating healthy habits into your diet. Anyway, past that, I will say that this episode is exciting, first of all, because we're going to be talking about transients and supernovae, which I think are super cool. Y'all had your time with planets And now we're moving on to Supernovae, so thank you very much. I will take this time. And second of all, things become super exciting after their kind of proverbial death. I mean, there's a reason that people watch The Walking Dead. It's because undead things are exciting, and they're cool, and they're weird, and they're foreign to us, you know? It's kind of an unnatural idea that things can come back after death, and that's what makes them
0: so interesting to think about. All right, I, I totally buy that. That's
2: very cool. Yeah, it's a cool, like, Phoenix rising from the ashes kind of theme, Mm. where, like, you know, things don't have to die after death, and it's not quite zombies, because (laughs) none of these things were quite alive in the first place, but, Mm -hmm. you know, it's still, there's a lot of really interesting stuff in astronomy, even after death, so so to speak.
1: And it's actually a pretty apt analogy, because Phoenix rising from the ashes, supernovae create a lot of ash and soot, and then... (laughs) Right, yeah, and yeah, usually yeah. you think of the phoenix as like a kind of arising from the flames, and I don't know, a thermonuclear explosion, and then something happening <laughs> afterwards is pretty
0: cool to me. That that is pretty cool. All right, you know what? Maybe this is this is actually a, one of our more uplifting episodes where we show how how there's excitement even in destruction, and, and, and juxtapose the, the the most extreme parts of the human experience.
2: N- nice. That's the spirit.
0: All right. Oh, thanks for getting me excited. No problem. I'll have to incorporate some of these lines into my next proposal. (laughs) Yeah, I guess it depends who's reading it. I don't know if they'll go for it. (laughs) All right. So should we get into things? Let's jump into it. Alex, lead us off. All right. You got
1: it. Okay. So I want to start off by talking about my astrobite, which is called Zombie Star Went Supernova Twice. You like that little inflection because there's a question mark at the <laughs> end. <Yeah. one. laughs> by Ida Vergen, a PhD student in the Astronomy and Space Sciences Department at Istanbul University, and it's written about a paper by S. Woosley from 2018. Now, this paper looks at the supernova IPTF14HLS. Very catchy. Which name. was yeah, yeah right. How, Just
2: how did they name supernovae? What what is it, that?
1: It rolls off the tongue. <laughs> uh, <laughs> So, I mean, it's a similar nomenclature to naming planets, I imagine. PTF, Palomar Transient Factory, oh. uh, Transient Facility, excuse me, that discovered it. And then the. Uh...
2: And then, of course, 14 HLS. Why, why not?
1: So, 14 was because it was discovered <laughs> in September 2014. Uh, okay. HLS, I think they just roll through letters in the alphabet. D- based oh. on how many they discovered in that year. Interesting.
2: Okay, cool.
0: So looking at this on the screen, the, there's a lowercase i followed by a capital P T F, but the letters H L S are lowercase. I mean, that's just bizarre. You do
1: not ask me about the uh, upper and lowercase. No. It looks sure, like but.
2: like someone's password. You know. <laughs> there, there
1: are. <laughs> Infinitely more interesting things about this supernova. Alex, thanks for sharing about
0: your (laughs) asteroid. Melina, why don't you? (laughs) I know why you wanted to talk about supernovae now. They're just so exciting. What a great topic! (laughs) Sorry,
2: sorry. It was a a really cool idea. Double supernova. Let's go.
1: It was a mistake to get you so amped up at the beginning (laughs) of the episode because we're not going to get through anything.
0: (laughs) All right, all right. Come on. Let's 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 bring it. Let's bring it back. Um, okay, <laughs> Alex, what's, so, what's the deal with this weird supernova? Yeah, so we're talking about
1: IPTF-14HLS. It was classified as a supernova, but it's weird. Now, to start off, it did not look weird when they first uh, discovered and classified it. It had lots of hydrogen in its spectrum, and so it was classified as a Type 2 supernovae. So just to harken back to previous episodes, Type 1 supernova has little to no hydrogen present within its spectrum, And a type 2 could have potentially lots of hydrogen.
0: Uh, So the supernova went number two? (laughs) Is that what you're saying? (laughs) Well, I don't condone bathroom humor on this podcast, if that's what you're implying. You had me cut multiple potty jokes from the script. (laughs) Behind the scenes. (laughs) You're very serious about that. (laughs) All right. So
1: this new supernova was really weird. Uh, in particular, most supernovae experience the kind of traditional one peak as it begins to explode and then a gradual uh, decline over time. And that decline for a core collapse supernovae takes about 100 days. This is normally, right? But this particular supernovae experienced not one but five peaks Whoa. in its light curve. And not only that, but it seems like it remained bright for around a 1,000 days. So about 10 times longer than your traditional core collapse supernova.
2: That sounds so strange.
1: Very, very strange.
0: Is this the first one that's been seen like that?
1: We think so, yeah. Wow. So there could be others in the literature where the light curves were not well documented. I mean, we have sparse Mm -hmm. light curve information for lots of supernovae, but this is the one where very high precision uh, photometry mm. was collected for this event over time and it just the light curve goes all over the place.
2: Mm-hmm. Wow.
1: And not only that but the derived temperature of the event stayed roughly constant instead of cooling as you would expect from material expanding outward from this explosion.
0: Huh. All right, so yeah. so what what on earth could that be?
1: Well, first we have to delve into archival data, which is what the astronomers did in this case. And they found that there's evidence of a supernova happening before at this exact same
0: location in 1954. Look, well, just could it be in front or behind? How do they know it's like the same part of space?
2: Yeah, it it could be a binary too, right? Like even if it's in the same spot?
1: So space is pretty vast and we're still not at the resolution where we can detect every supernova. And so if we could, it might be possible that we would find one that perfectly lines up with another one behind it. Mm-hmm. But in this case, it seems pretty unlikely. And okay, uh, with respect to a binary system, we think that if one star goes supernova, it kicks the other one out of the system, out of the area. So you're not likely to find another one going supernova at the exact same location.
0: Okay. Well, I mean... To 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 prelude a little bit of what I'll talk about, if that's true, how do you end up with, uh, say, a white dwarf and a pulsar orbiting each other, or something like that, or or a, or a pulsar and a and a uh, a regular star orbiting each other? Like that, those happen, right?
2: Maybe those are like wide binaries, and so the supernova doesn't so strongly affect the companion.
0: Okay. Interesting.
2: Um, I'm not sure if, I'm not sure, like, when you say the same location, do you mean, like, the exact same RA deck? Like, there is no um, difference where it could just be a wide binary?
1: Yeah, so I think, I mean, even our astrometry isn't great enough for us to say that this is, like, the perfect exact same location. But I think it's close enough for us to say this is probably the same star doing something very strange over 60 years.
2: Hmm. Yeah. Cool. And in any case, like, the five peaks in themselves are super weird, even right, if there right. wasn't the double supernova, too. I
1: agree. And this is what prompted them to look at archival data, is finding this really weird phenomenon in the light curve to begin with. Yeah. So, now now that I have you all on the edge of your seat, wondering <laughs> yeah. not, it could have been, right? It's <laughs> so
2: strange. Okay, yeah, I'm super curious now.
1: Okay, so... The author of this paper considered three potential models. And I I don't know why I always feel like every time we talk about potential models, there's almost
0: always three. (laughs) Good things come in threes. Also, bad things come in threes. I don't know. They say things come in threes. (laughs) Fair enough. Well, I'll I'll describe the three models
1: and you can decide whether they're good things or bad things. (laughs) So, the three models are, number one, that a supernova potentially interacted with the circumstellar medium around it. Number two is that this object was what's known as a pulsational pair instability supernova. And number three,
0: magnetars.
2: (laughs) When in doubt, magnetic fields, you know. (laughs) It's
0: it's true. (laughs) All right. um, This seems like a lot of jargon. Um, Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, all right. so, So, break it down for us piece by piece.
1: Okay. So, number one, circumstellar medium interactions. So, it's thought that if a supernova plows into the low-density medium around it, but that material is extends for a fair bit very close to the supernova, that you can get efficient conversion of kinetic energy from the explosion to photons. And that could translate to us seeing a light curve that extends far longer than you might expect. But hmm. this model does not explain the... Phenomenon that was observed, the supernova that was observed in 1954. Hmm. Okay. So that moves us to model number two, which is potential magnetar models. So it's thought that if a star goes supernova, then the remnant can collapse into a very quickly spinning, highly magnetized neutron star that could additionally expel energy and power the light curve for longer than just the supernova event itself. But that still doesn't explain the 1954 supernova.
0: So is there, like, oh, okay. like energy stored in the magnetic field and then it kind of gets released over time? Is that what they're saying?
1: Right. So, yeah, huh. young magnetars are uh, very energetic and I think can flare multiple times. Okay. And so we talked about fast radio bursts. Mm-hmm. These might be from young magnetars in the very turbulent periods in their lives.
2: Okay. Okay. So that... Either of those could be maybe an explanation for the five peaks then. And so then hopefully the pair instability could explain the 1954 event. Is that true?
1: Hopefully, yeah. So the pulsational pair instability supernova is, has been up to this point, a lot of yeah. words, has been a theoretical concept, okay? So it's thought that when a star is 100 to 130 solar masses, a really, really massive star, is near the end of its life, then the temperature at its heavy element core can get so high that through quantum interactions, photons instantaneously get converted to electron-positron pairs. So antimatter is actively created in the core of this star at the very end of its life.
2: Hmm.
1: So if this is true, then lots of photons are disappearing all at the same time at the very center of this star, and so radiation pressure that's holding the star upward drops precipitously okay so wow. yeah so feeling a lot less pressure than it did before the star immediately implodes which increases the density of the center and ignites more intense burning at that core which then causes it to expand
0: all right i, I, have, a, I have a few questions before you go yeah. further. this is really <laughs> yeah, yeah, this yeah. is really intriguing to me um mm-hmm. so it, it, this happens much more often for really massive stars, but why can't it happen for regular mass stars, just not as much?
1: Yeah, so the thought is that you need a star past a certain mass threshold in order to get temperatures high enough at the center to have this conversion from photons to electron-positron pairs. If you have a smaller star, it's just not going to reach that critical temperature.
0: All right, I see.
2: So, So the argument... Here then would be that this is like a singular event and we haven't seen this happen many times because you require such a high stellar mass for this to happen at all and we don't see those very often exactly
1: Yeah. yeah so there's there's a traditional parent stability supernova which after it collapses explodes outward in a supernova and it's catastrophic and there's nothing left but the pulsational parent stability it collapses and then expands again And when it expands, it sheds off some of its material, but not all of it, maybe 10 solar masses. So then this process can happen again. It collapses, sheds off some more material, and this can have this kind of periodic effect. These are the pulses in the pulsational pair instability supernova. So it's thought that maybe the 1954 event was the first or one of several pulses from an object like this which would be crazy if true because we've never actually seen one of these events happen
0: i wonder with these supermassive stars they are so short-lived is this occurring after like they've already done the regular hydrogen burning and they're out of hydrogen or is this like happening as their lifetime goes on
1: so the thought is that at least for the pulsational parent stability supernova, you're igniting helium burning at the center. So this, oh. is, this is long after most of the hydrogen has disappeared, has been uh, burned away from the center of this star. But I will mention that the pulsational parent stability model can explain the 1954, but it still can explain why the light curve lasted so long. So this is kind of the flip, it can explain the other phenomenon, but not the first one.
0: And you can't just combine the models; it's not that simple. It may, it might be that
1: simple. So right now, people's best guess is that this might be a pulsational pair stability that had very uh, a great amount of circumstellar material surrounding it that converted energy into light and extended the light curve.
0: Damn, that's a quite the enigma, though. An interesting discovery connected with a very unusual historical piece. It's crazy, amazing right? that they thought to look in the archives, even, like so many people would just say, "Oh, this is, this is new. Here's a, here's a nice supernova. It's like weird to, to even think to do that. I, I wouldn't cross my mind. Totally, yeah.
1: It's amazing to me that we have data like that from the '50s that we can look back on.: Cool.
2: I guess supernovae are pretty bright, so they
1: are pretty bright.: <laughs> All right, yeah. Milena, I think it's time for our uh, what is it called?:
2: Astro sounds gape of the astro Fortnite. i really don't remember what you said bi-weekly, <laughs> last bi-weekly something, something astro so. space sound yep. yeah uh, yeah so i have a mystery space sound that i'm going to be playing for you both um, and you will just go ahead and listen and guess what you think it is all right i'm all excited right. so all right It is
0: underwater computer noises from the eighties. Yeah, I know exactly what this is.
2: This is ah, uh, it's a good eye.
0: This is the mating call of the intergalactic
1: whale. I would recognize recognize those calls. That's it. That was
0: a big discovery when they found the intergalactic whale a few years ago. Made the cover of Nature. Yeah, yeah, really made some big headlines, didn't it?
2: Honestly, I would believe it, but this is actually. Um, the sonification of a visualization of an HST image of a cluster of galaxies. And so huh. um, in time they're playing different sounds for different parts of the images where Um, lower in the image is lower pitch, and then higher in the image is higher pitch. And so the idea is that when you get to the center, it is sort of like a lot louder. There's a lot of stuff in the middle of the image because you're at the center of the Mm. galaxy cluster. Uh, And then when you're at the edges, it's sort of a little bit quieter. There is, It's a much more dispersed region where you don't have quite so much stuff in your field. There aren't as many galaxies there. Does that make sense? Does Hmm. the
1: intensity of the light from... A particular galaxy correspond to something in the sonification
2: um i don't think that the intensity does but how compact the galaxy is makes a difference and so what? if it's very compact and if you see a star for example then it's a really short and very clear tone and the more extended objects lead to these more extended tones
0: cool that's very so nice. we're hearing
1: the sounds of different galaxies
2: yeah
0: i've never thought of of uh, what, what did you say? Soundifying an image? What was the word you said?
2: Sonifying. S- sonifying.
0: That's, that's a good yeah. word. Uh, I've never thought about sonifying mm. an image. I've always kind of seen it as a mm. something where it's um, a time series, right, of, of data. That's easier to turn into sound, but to just take like mm-hmm. a still image and kind of just track across it, right? Is that is that kind of what they're doing?
2: Yeah. Yeah. It's a really interesting way to think of images in a totally different way, because we really think of them as something visual, but, you know, the same astronomical data doesn't have to be just visual. You can also show it in different ways, like sonification.
0: Very cool. Yeah, interesting. Well, thank you for sharing. the sound, Milena. Yeah, Yeah, thank you for guessing. (laughs) I wish I had any clue.
2: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I mean, some of these can be pretty tricky, especially when it's not, like, a sound that a star made somehow, you know?
0: Yep. Yeah. yep. All right, well, let's take us to your astrobite. You got it. The astrobite I read is called It Takes Two to Tango, Eclipsing White Dwarfs Push General Relativity to Its Limit. And this was written by Wynne Jacobson-Gowan, and the paper is written by Burge and others published in 2019. Well, you were
1: getting on me about... Uh... Jargon, and now I got to do the same for you. What is an eclipsing white dwarf?
0: All right, real quick white dwarf is a dead low mass star, but as we'll see, dead is a very relative term. Uh, (laughs) uh, Binary means they orbit each other, it's two uh, white dwarfs. Eclipsing means they orbit each other in a plane along our line of sight, so they can take turns blocking each other. And as far as I understand, these are pretty rare.
2: So I don't really understand why these would be rare. Don't most stars actually form in multiple systems, and then you might expect a lot of white dwarf binaries when both stars die eventually?
0: Yeah, I'll be honest. I don't have uh, an exceptional understanding of why um, you don't see white dwarf binaries that often. If I had to guess, I would say that because they're not going to be exactly the same mass, um, they're not going to have the same lifetime, and when one dies, it, it's going to or, – or it doesn't have to die all the way, but it can swell up and become a helium-burning star. It could end up imparting matter onto the other that then does a, a white dwarf nova and could disrupt the system, and that's why they'd be rare. Um, that's my guess on it. I'll be honest. I don't have a, a full understanding of the dynamics.
1: So, okay. So let's move on with the astrobite. How do they find something that is as rare as you say it is?
0: What they're using is the Zwicky Transient Factory, which is the successor to the Palomar Transient uh, Facility that you talked about, Alex. Mm-hmm. It's an all-sky survey. It searches for things that change on short timescale. And they found this object with a name that, you know, is a bunch of letters and numbers. It's ZTFJ1539 <laughs> plus 5027. It's cool because it has a period of only about seven minutes.
1: Very cool. Yeah. So. I'm guessing that has some implication for general relativity.
0: Yeah, h- how'd you know? <laughs> <laughs> it was the title of your aspect, play. <laughs> yeah, so this is, a, this is a very cool thing because when you have white dwarfs orbiting each other every seven minutes, um, they produce gravitational waves that were predicted by general relativity. And at this short timescale, they're actually going to lose energy and spiral into each other in a timescale we can observe. Um and that's so cool to think that we were watching a system decay by releasing energy in gravity waves, gravitational waves excuse me and and they actually find it it's it's a cool thing. One of the figures in the Astrobite shows a plot with a with a line a curve predicting exactly where you'd expect the orbit to decay, and every observational dot is right exactly on the middle of the line. so that's pretty wow. cool.
2: Wow. So what's the the beyond-the-grave part of your astrobite, though? Is it just that these are white dwarves, or is there some prediction they're making for the future?
0: Yeah, that's where things get cool, uh, where this system is going. Now, they Mm -hmm. predict, the authors, that it'll continue to decay for about 130,000 years, so it's not going to happen anytime soon. But um, at that point, the period will be about five minutes, crazy short, these guys orbiting each other. And what's going to happen is the secondary in the system, that is a smaller mass object, is going to swell up and start to flow mass into an accretion disk around the primary. And there are possibilities of what might happen then. The primary, the, the higher mass one, could get enough matter from the secondary that it will start fusing helium and be reborn as a, a star for a short while. It's um, a little less likely, but certainly possible, that the primary will accrete too quickly and become unstable and just detonate, and the whole thing will blow up in a double... Supernova, double white dwarf nova, <laughs> you know, crazy cool explosion.
2: <laughs> wow! Holy crap. Yeah, that sounds really. Dramatic. They, they don't think
0: it's it's overwhelmingly <laughs> likely to happen, but I mean, nobody really yeah. knows, right? Hmm.
2: It's kind of like multiple deaths because you know a white dwarf has already kind of died, mm. but then it dies again in a fiery explosion.
1: Yeah, yeah, I know there's <laughs> I know there's a lot of debate. Uh, within the supernova community where people argue about what causes kind of the traditional 1a supernova and some people think it's uh, a one- a white dwarf that accretes matter from its binary and mm-hmm. other people think it's the merger of two white dwarfs so maybe if we see a, a 1a supernova from this event in 130,000 <laughs> yeah, <right. 000> years
2: <laughs> eventually just a little time <laughs> we'll
1: get we'll get one more data point
2: yeah <laughs> yeah so speaking of supernovae, though, even those aren't actually the end, uh, based on the discussion and the astrobyte that I'll be talking about. Uh, so I'll be talking about actually pulsar planets, and the astrobyte is called Why Are Pulsar Planets Rare? It was written by Joey Schmidt, who was actually a six-year grad student at Yale, right, as I was arriving. Cool. Uh, and it's about a 2016 paper by Rebecca Rebecca Martin et al.
0: That's such a great title. It like. Gives you a, a taste of something really cool without giving away the punchline. I, I think that's really fun. Um, <laughs> all right, so yeah. so what what the what the heck's a pulsar planet? And while you're at it, what's a pulsar?
2: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so I'll start with the pulsar because that's a little more fundamental before talking about the stuff around it. Uh, So pulsars are rapidly rotating neutron stars, which are the dense cores of massive stars that have already undergone a supernova. So after you have your supernova explosion, you sometimes end up with these uh, neutron stars that we call pulsars. And then you can also get these pulsar planets, which are just basically planet-sized objects that orbit those pulsars. And there's a lot of debate about as to what can actually be considered the first exoplanet that was discovered. Um, but actually, years before the discovery of 51 Peg B, uh, which is the first confirmed exoplanet around a sun-like star, the first exoplanetary system, which actually had two planets, was found around a pulsar by Wolksan and Frail in 1992. I didn't know that. Yeah, so it, they're actually like historically really important for... Uh, the field of planets but searches since then have actually found that there are very few planets around these exotic pulsars and less than one percent of pulsars actually have planets
1: yeah we talked earlier about a supernova kicking out the uh binary companion can you explain how the heck you could get planets around stars that have already gone supernova
2: Yeah, there are a couple of possible formation scenarios because, you know, this is something really non intuitive. Like, it's not something you'd expect if you didn't see it. Right. And so, one of these ideas is maybe the planets could have formed when the host star was young. This is like the classical formation model, and they just somehow survived the supernova. But if that was the case, they'd have to form super, super fast. The stars that blow up in supernovae and become neutron stars are at least eight solar masses, and they don't actually live very long. Hmm. Uh, so the circumstellar disk would have to very efficiently form these planets. And they'd also have to somehow avoid getting destroyed after the star expands as a red supergiant and survive the explosion. So it doesn't seem super likely that that was the case. <laughs>
0: uh. <laughs> Damn, that, that's, a, that's a tough life there to,
2: <laughs> yeah. to deal with
0: that condition. i yeah, I'm I'm very skeptical that, that that would actually work.
2: Yeah, so that's probably not what actually happened. And so theorists had to come up with some other way to explain what actually did happen. And so it's probably something else. And maybe after the supernova, some material falls back into a disk that can form planets, potentially.
0: And we talked about that. That's feedback, right?
2: yeah yeah so this would be a form of feedback where you know material is cycling through the system it never really disappears it just moves elsewhere Um, and it's also possible that you could instead have a low mass companion star that was destroyed through evaporation from that supernova and that reduced it to a planet size or it made like a planet mass disk around the neutron star that then somehow formed a planet so it could actually just be like the core of a star created this object that looks planet-sized now.
1: Huh. So, so which one of these theories is more likely? Do you think?
2: Uh, so the authors here are arguing that the third scenario is probably the most likely. The um, always coming
0: threes. Where... <laughs> yeah,
2: threes. Yeah, always coming threes. Honestly. <laughs> And so the reason that they argue this is because the material that falls back after a supernova probably doesn't have a lot of angular momentum. So it just falls straight back on the neutron star and wouldn't make a disk. There isn't a reason that it would form a disk really. Um, But it's even if we have sort of this low-mass companion star getting destroyed, it's still pretty hard to get that scenario. Um, So only 10% of these stars actually have a low enough mass companion that pulsar planets are a real possibility. And only 10% of those can realistically survive and stay gravitationally bound from a supernova. So we'd really only expect about 1% of neutron star progenitors to form pulsar planets at all.
0: Wow. And even if they did meet all those conditions, they could form a disk, right, and not a planet.
2: Yeah, yeah. So you can get a planet from a disk, but only if it's massive enough. You Mm. really need it to um, have enough mass that it can shield the heating from the star and form these things called dead zones where you have pressured bumps in the disk profile that allow material to build up. And if you don't have enough mass, then you won't get dead zones and you just are left with a disk forever.
1: Huh, cool. I wonder if you would be able to detect... Dust disks, debris disks around pulsars. If they didn't form a planet,
2: I'm pretty sure they've been found around white dwarfs, but I'm not sure if they've been found around pulsars. So cool. Yeah, would be interesting to look for. There's also the question of whether they would be massive enough to find easily. So, (laughs) right right. and common enough. Is that too? Like again, these these planets are pretty uncommon. But I'm not actually sure whether people have looked for disks. I think that'd be a really interesting topic to look into.
0: If you have a disk around a uh, pulsar, it's the, the radiation from the pulsar is going to be so different than the radiation from a star. It, it's like it's so, high, it's so high temperature, it's going to be too ionizing, right? Wouldn't it, wouldn't it need to be a much, much heavier disk to not get lost due to ionization from the radiation? Well, the radiation is only
1: extremely intense along the, the pulse as it sweeps past, Right. Or am I wrong? Well,
0: the whole thing is really I'm, hot, no?
2: I think you're also thinking of maybe a gas disk, whereas I'm mm. talking more about like a dust disk. I see. So I think that it wouldn't be as affected. Although there is always, like these debris disks are always being continually replenished if we see them because the radiation pressure from these stars is constantly blowing them out. And it's not that strong, but it's strong enough that they should be blown out on fairly short time scales. So... Yeah, I'm not sure. If, do pulsars have winds? Maybe. Yeah, oh, oh for sure. I su- think they winds. do. I
0: I think they do. Um, I think pulsar wind is something I've heard before. Let's Google it. Hmm. Pulsar Her. wind. Oh, yeah. All right. <laughs> pulsar wind nebula. Yeah, I, I've seen this thing before. Whoa, interesting. Um, it's a nebula found inside the shells of supernova remnants that is powered by pulsar winds generated by the central pulsar. So, yeah. Okay. So, they do have. Yeah. Winds. They probably have crazy strong winds because they're crazy. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah.
2: Huh. yeah. Yeah, so maybe even this dust like it that that makes me think that even if you form one of these disks, you probably wouldn't get a planet in a lot of cases because it would have to form really quickly mm. before any of the dust is blown out or before much of the dust is blown out. So
1: well, we're coming to the end of our new se- segment of Wild Speculation with Will and Malena and Alex, which brings us to our one-sentence summary. So can you kick us off, Molina? <laughs>
2: yeah. Um, so pulsar planets are super metal, probably literally, since they're probably made of the cores of disrupted stars. And <laughs> <laughs> um, their formation requires a really specific set of phenomena all aligning just perfectly, though, which explains why they're pretty Pretty rare. Uh, So how about you, Alex? What's your one-sentence summary?
1: You've got your supernovae, and then you've got your wannabe supernovae that spend (laughs) decades trying to come up with creative new ways to explode but always fall a
0: little short of the mark. Nice.
1: Will? Hmm.
0: The close binary white dwarfs orbit each other so fast that we can actually watch their orbits decay by releasing gravitational waves. That is until they either give birth to a new star or die for good in a glorious inferno. <laughs>
1: <laughs> Infernos in space. I like that.
0: Figure of speech.
2: That's, that's beautiful, though. You know, it's like a rebirth. And I feel like all of our asteroids, in some way have been about rebirth, where, you know, death isn't the end. It's like there are these continual processes that just keep happening. And it it's pretty rare to actually get to a point where your astrophysical object is not going to do anything anymore, it seems. Like, yeah. there are so many things that could happen to it eventually if you wait long enough.
1: So why is that? I think at least part of it is because of how efficient... Uh, feedback mechanisms are in the universe so if something can never really die it just gets reused and recycled in different forms then you constantly see what seems like the end stages of something but then its material gets recycled into something else and it just changes form we see that again and again in astronomy
2: it's true. Okay. And I mean, nothing is really entirely isolated in astronomy. So if you wait long enough, it'll probably interact with something else. It might be an absurdly long time scale, but you'll eventually have something happen to it at least.
1: I I think that's beautiful. I think that <laughs> the, the notion that everything <laughs> leaves its mark on its surroundings in some way, shape, or form is a cool idea. I think it's true yeah.
0: in, in a large sense because – there is so much that, I mean, I'm going to extrapolate this to, to my own life. I think there's so much I don't realize I impact other people. And, and when you think about it, like there's so much that you affect just by being a person. You don't have to change the world to actually change a lot of people. Um, and mm-hmm. I, think, I think that is, you know, connecting well. I don't think it's a huge stretch to draw the analogy to the universe and say, like, when we're talking about things like, you know fields and streams of particles energy and and these you know massive concepts uh, radiation and, and what have you that like it n- nothing ever happens isolated right it's all it's all going to affect somebody else some other object um, mm-hmm. and that that's a nice it's a nice idea but you would you would think though with space being so empty maybe these are rare maybe these things that that you know have a exciting afterlife are not kind of the the status quo
2: yeah it's true we might just have sort of a bias where like we are interested in the cool shiny stuff where we see like who double Uh supernova and like cool unusual things but that doesn't necessarily mean they're the norm uh it could be much more common to have a lot more mundane things to do or that end up being the end states of these objects And I don't think that means that they'll never have an effect on other objects in the remainder of their quote-unquote lifetime, Um, because, you know, it's like a universe-scale butterfly effect where everything is going to somehow affect something else. Um, Mm. But yeah, I think not necessarily everything is going to have, like, flashy pulsar planets and, like, Mm -hmm. double supernova and, like... Exploding into another supernova after your stars die and things like that.
1: I think it's also useful to remember that as astronomers, we live in the world of analogy. Mm. So we talk about life cycles of different objects, but in reality, they're not alive in the sense that we are alive. And so their quote unquote right. death is really just another stage in their life or a stage in the life of this material as it's changing form. And we only think about that as a death because we have death in our own lives.
2: Although when you think about it, we can be reborn as trees and stuff. So, you know,
1: hmm.
2: it's like we are also part of that cycle because we, too, are made of material.
1: Star stuff, some might say.
2: <laughs> <laughs> Dust, perhaps, even. <laughs>
1: nice. <laughs> wow. I think it that's a just... be- that's a beautiful <laughs> sentiment to end this episode on. We are all made of star <laughs> stuff. Everything is connected. Yeah. Death
0: is not the end. With that, we will conclude episode nine of Astro Soundbites, Beyond the Grave. If you'd like to read the Astro Bites that we talked about today or the papers that they summarize, check out the links in the show notes. And we have now nine total episodes up on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Play, and SoundCloud. I am super excited with how this podcast is going, and I am so glad we are taking on this crazy project and doing something a year ago I couldn't have imagined us to do. So thanks for listening, everybody. And don't forget to keep your ears to the cosmos.